First Kings chapter 16, beginning of verse 29. This is God's word. And in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did, prov- did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. In his days did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. One of the things that I often like to look at in my death spiraling on YouTube is videos describing the various kinds of logical fallacies. And uh, one of my least favorites probably is arguments using the slippery slope uh, fallacy. And if you want to know what that is in its crudest form, we might suggest something like the proverbial butterfly who flapping its wings in India is responsible for a hurricane in Louisiana. That uh, one act can cause a uh, series of acts, a slope to go down uh, that ends in disaster. And while logically, while you might think of that, there could be a possibility of a causal link between a hurricane in Louisiana and a butterfly flapping its wings in India, the likelihood of proving any such causation is unlikely, if not impossible. And such arguments for or against certain actions based upon uh, such argumentation to me seem largely fruitless. And yet, despite my hesitancy for the slippery slope argument, the Bible clearly reflects that the effect of one decision, one action, can create a new environment of corruption. I think the best example of this is Derek Kidner in his commentary on Genesis 3. He writes, So simple an act, so hard its undoing, God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. You always love a good Kidner quote, at least I do, and this is probably one of his best from Genesis chapter 3 when he talks about the words that she took and ate of the, tree, of the fruit of the tree and gave it to her husband also. And that one act... Uh, plunged mankind into uh, fallenness. One decision that would, that would begin a slide of iniquity that would end in the total destruction of the world through the flood and the necessity of redemption. And this idea is important to us because the purity of God's people suffers the assault from many directions as we have seen throughout this series. And as we continue through the Bible, we find ourselves chronologically after the reign of David, the kingdom divided following the reign of Solomon, his, ide- his, his idolatry leading uh, to a bitter civil war. And the divided kingdom between the north and the south of Israel has limped on. The southern kingdom, loyal to the house of David, enjoys relatively peaceful transitions of power 
And yet the northern kingdom, called Israel, has suffered through a series of succession struggles. And you can understand why. There is no dynasty recognized like the dynasty of David. Each claimant to the throne basically has just as much right to every other claimant to the throne. And now, as we continue looking at the northern kingdom, we find another succession story. One that will have a lasting influence throughout both kingdoms. This story injects such defilement that it will poison the southern kingdom as well as one of Ahab's uh, daughters will marry into the southern kingdom, Athaliah, who will uh, corrupt the kingdom so much and bring uh, the iniquity of Baal uh, to that location. And so in this passage, we see a new king, the new wife, and the new evil, the new king, the new wife, and the new evil. As one of the most famous Old Testament kings takes the stage, he does so against an already black background. As the story begins, we find a history of instability and a history of idolatry. Ahab literally, or literally, figuratively erupts onto the scene in verse 30 and 29. And in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab the son of Omri to reign over Israel. Nahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. It's important to recognize that when we have these markers, usually when a new king takes over from either the north, northern or the southern kingdom, uh, their date of accession is measured by uh, the reigning monarch in the competing kingdom. And so here, uh, the date of Ahab's accession to the throne is marked by the year of the reign of the man in the southern kingdom. And this man, Asa, is only the third king of the divided southern kingdom after Rehoboam and Abijah. So it's Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa. This is, there hasn't been a lot of kings in the southern kingdom. But at the same, in the same period of time in the northern kingdom, seven people have claimed the throne of Israel. And during Ahab's lifetime, I estimate that he saw five different claimants to the throne he now holds. His own father had to fight an internecine civil war at the beginning of his reign. And Ahab takes the throne of an, in an environment where Israel has never had the son of a king maintain his dynasty. Jeroboam's son and Baasha's son both suffered death at the hands of rival claimants to the throne, both houses of Jeroboam and Baasha erased by blood. Ahab takes the throne, understanding probably his need to establish his power in the new capital established by his father Omri in Samaria. We know that he seems to succeed in this because the verse tells us that he will reign for 22 years, and the Bible tells us that he is not executed at the hands of a rival to his throne. He, is, he falls, rather, in battle with a foreign nation. But Ahab reigns in a culture of idolatry and chooses to double down on the sin. Look at verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. We will expand on this as we get further into the passage, but it bears mentioning here that each time the historian of Samuel Kings introduces a new king, they usually include some judgment about his reign. He either does good in the sight of the Lord or he does evil in the sight of the Lord. And usually the writer measures uh, this good or bad by some human benchmark. 
for doing good in the sight of the Lord, that goodness is measured against David. And for evil, he do, he, the benchmark is the unnamed prior kings. Here we see the evil mentioned as greater than the kings before, which is interesting because the writer also mentions this about Omri. Omri does more evil than all those who are before him. And Ahab exceeds his father in doing evil. And while David sets the standard for the southern kingdom in Judah, it's Jeroboam I that plays the role for setting the benchmark for the northern kingdom, Israel. And you see that there in verse 31, where Ahab is measured against Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So it's important to recognize what Jeroboam did. Jeroboam played the role in separating from the house of David. He also set the moral course for the northern kingdom. When he broke from uh, the house of David, he notices in the kingdom of Israel a troubling, pass uh, a troubling practice. You see, three times every year, every male is supposed to go from whatever city they're in to the temple to present themselves before the Lord. And Jeroboam notices that all of his citizens are leaving their houses, leaving the boundaries of the nation and going to the nation against which it, it, he is potentially in a civil war. They're going not only to the new, uh, that nation that is his enemy, but they're going to the capital city where his rival is, sits enthroned on, at the house of David. And so he fears that this will lead his people to return to faithfulness to the house of David. And to prevent this, he sets up alternative worship locations. And Dan and Bethel, at two opposite ends of his land, he sets up what Israel always sets up when they're trying to create their own worship of the Lord. Golden calves. Golden calves, the Israel never seems to tire of worshiping the God who brings them out of Egypt through golden calves. And this act of political maneuvering sets the moral decline of Israel. When Omri takes power, the historian also makes a similar judgment that we find associated with Ahab. He does, he does uh, more evil than those who came before it. And Ahab will exceed the idolatry of Omri. You see, Omri only followed the, the idolatry that Jeroboam had established. But Ahab has greater ambitions. We learn from Ahab early on that leadership influences the purity of God's people. By the time Ahab finishes with Israel, the Lord will tell Elijah that there are 7,000 who have not corrupted themselves with Ahab's idols. Sure, it's better than Elijah's claim that I, only I, have remained faithful to you. But in terms of the larger nation, it's not much. And this idea isn't a screed regarding modern political practice or theory, for we don't live in a theocratic state. Rather, this passage ought to sober those who exercise any kind of spiritual leadership. For the way that we lead others has a powerful effect upon them spiritually. Whether they be ministers, elders, husbands, parents, 
teachers, how you lead matters. How you point people to Christ matters. It also speaks to, in our democratic society, to all who have the ability to choose their spiritual leaders. You choose who you will accept and follow. You choose who you will listen to as your spiritual guide. You choose who you will listen, who will teach you what the scriptures say. You choose and can choose who will have spiritual oversight of you. You choose who you allow into your life to influence your purity. And the Bible warns us to choose well. Choose who will faithfully lead you toward purity, toward being holy before the Lord. We see the new king, but secondly, we see the new wife. The new king chooses a new wife, a choice that develops from the king's likely pursuit of further iniquity. We see him measured against former sin as he chooses a foreign wife. We find Ahab measured against the sin of the northern kingdom and Israel's foundational sin in verse 31. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Ahab thinks that the idolatry of Jeroboam doesn't go far enough. It's too close to the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who brought them out of Egypt. It's too redolent of Jerusalem. Now, perhaps Ahab is motivated by uh, political ambitions to consolidate his rule, to establish Israel's, the northern kingdom's, religious uh, idea further from Jerusalem's God. Perhaps he grows jealous of the unity of the political and spiritual center there in the southern kingdom, united in Jerusalem. Perhaps he chooses to establish Samaria, not just as the political center of the northern kingdom, but also as its religious center. Now, he won't do it through moving the two calves from Dan and Bethel to Samaria. He has a more insidious plot in his mind. And to that end, he chooses a religious figure, perhaps, to unite in marriage. He took to wife, verse 31, Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. This marriage and this woman so dominate the image of moral rebellion against God in the Bible that some believe she must have been invented. And you can understand their point. She seems almost a caricature of absolute, ruthless wickedness. When you think of Jezebel, there is nothing in her that you can envision but absolute, utter wickedness. And yet, why would we doubt the historicity of such a person? Does her record suggest anything other than the behavior of other tyrants of history? Contrasted to her insecure husband, we find her quite reasonable. And this marriage brings the idolatry of the nations to the political center of Israel. The story has become depressingly familiar to the reader of Samuel Kings by now. Just as Solomon, whose wives and concubines led him away from the Lord, led his, led his heart away from the Lord to offer incense to the the gods of the nation. So Ahab now follows his wife as well. But let's not play the blame the woman game. 
For honestly, the women, both in Solomon's life and Ahab's life, uh, they haven't changed as far as we know. They remain faithful to their prior idols. You have no evidence that they sought out to corrupt these kings and to bring them down. They aren't the villains of the Bible. The men are. These kings had violated their duties. Solomon blatantly violated the law of the, of the king. For Deuteronomy 17, 17, told the king, neither shall he multiply wives to himself that his heart turn not away. If there's anything in Solomon's life, he completely ignored what the Bible uh, commanded, what God commanded the kings of his people to do. But for Ahab, he seems to go out of his way to find a, light, a wife that will lead to this result. The Zidonians were, are, the land, are in the land of Tyre. They're a coastal people. Probably this was a calculated marriage. Probably this was a, a political necessity. But we should ask the question if this marriage wasn't calculated by Ahab also to fracture the political alliance with the worship of the Lord. Did Ahab choose Jezebel as an excuse to remove the religious center to Samaria? For these two epitomize the picture of wickedness. The author of Kings will say later in his book, in chapter 21, There was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. None like him, the author of Kings says, that sold himself. You remember when we talked about the judges' cycle, that there, we saw there that the Lord sold his people into the hands of their tormentors to bring them back. Here is Ahab selling himself into slavery to the idols. There's one easy application of this, and that is to understand that marriage influences the purity of God's people. To those who are single, choose well, or at least don't choose poorly. God established the marriage, marriage at the beginning to be for the mutual faith and development of the couple worshiping together. Think about that. That's Genesis 2. The man and the woman in the garden together worshiping God. Perhaps the greatest aid to marriage is the united participatory worship both of husband and wife who are actively involved in worship together. This isn't a novel idea. I didn't just come up with this this week. It's ancient. It appears in Genesis 2. While your marriage influences the purity of God's people, we don't get the, op the option of playing the blame game, blaming one's spouse for one's spiritual life. We, we all bear responsibility for our own thoughts and attitudes and words and behavior. You choose to encourage or discourage the spiritual development between you. Paul mentions this even of unbelievers, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Paul is saying, be the sanctifier, to be sanctified in marriage. We see the new king and the new wife, and finally I want us to see the new evil. Ahab continues, why might have been his political consolidation that led to spiritual degradation, and this involved both temples and towns in Israel. 
Ahab seems to move the center of Israel's religious life to his capital city. It's at least it seems to me that that's his ambition, as we see in verse 32, and he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. Ahab builds a temple in Samaria. This is quite... It points us to the, the idea of what I'm saying here about the political idea of Ahab. Instead of moving the golden calves of Dan and Bethel to Samaria, he keeps the golden calves away from the political center of the nation. Instead, he establishes a new temple in the political center. A temple devoted not to the Lord God that brought them out of the land of Egypt, but a temple devoted to Baal. Remember, Baal here is the word that means owner or master. It's an, ide- an idol, probably portraying some kind of masculine fertility god. One with which Jezebel was associated and probably perhaps served as a priestess. And yet Abraham, Ahab, believes in equality between the genders in his new idols. Look verse 33, and Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Along with a male idol of fertility, Ahab constructs a worship place for the female fertility goddess as well. That's what the grove was. It's an Asherah. We talked about this earlier. The Baals were the male fertility god, and the Asherahs were the female fertility god. And the less said about their practices, perhaps the better. The historian seems disciplined to not to describe any further what he summarizes as the inevitable result. Ahab offends the Lord God more than all those kings who came before him. It was as if there was a drop in the bucket, their wickedness, to the wickedness of Ahab. He added to the idolatry attached to the Lord the abandonment of the Lord for the worship of mere imaginations and demons. The idolatry of the worship of God represented in the golden calves of Dan and Bethel were not enough for Ahab. He had to abandon the Lord altogether to establish the worship of pure idols and demons. And the spiritual corruption of the nation isn't limited to the city of Samaria, but the building of false worship occurs throughout the country. Verse 34, in the days, in his days did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. He laid the foundation in, thereof in Ibiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates of, in his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua the son of Nun. Ralph Davis, in his commentary, suggests that this man, Hiel, building Jericho, did so according to the commandment of Ahab, and I'm not sure he's wrong. This man from Bethel decides that he will rebuild the city that the Lord had cursed. And it's interesting that the chronicler, or actually the historian, names the sons that are involved here. Because Hiel names his children according to his arrogance against the Lord. He willfully condemns them to prove his superiority to the curse of Joshua. His firstborn is called Abiram, or my, God, my father is exalted. Imagine naming your son, my dad is great. That's got to take some hubris. 
His youngest, he just calls exalted. Which is interesting because if you read, he sets the gates, he, he laid the foundation in Abiram and sets the gates thereof in the, his youngest son. There are some who think that this was a sacrificial act that Hiel did with his boys, but uh, Ralph Davis and I agree that this is just the judgment of God upon Hiel for his presumption. He joins his king Ahab in insulting the Most High God to his face. He is brazenly rebellious before the Lord God. And my friend, we see much of that in our day. We see people rebelling against the God of the Bible, not in ignorance, but with knowledge. Knowing that they are doing what the Bible forbids and doing it anyway. Do you imagine that they will escape in the day of judgment? Can you curse God to his face and live? And yet the truth is, we have all done the same. We may lie to ourselves that we actually sin in ignorance, but our conscience reveals to us the truth. That we know the Creator, we know that we are, what we are doing is wrong. We know that the just God must punish sin. We know that we don't stand a chance on the day of judgment. And we know that we face an eternity in hell. But God... What wonderful words, those words, but God, for he chose to plan to redeem for himself a people. Jesus is God made man who lived without doing anything wrong. Yet he died condemned, not for anything he had done, but for the wrongs done by his people. He rose from the dead on the third day to show that no condemnation now face those who place their faith in him. Do you believe that what Jesus did, he did for you? Will you face the wrong that is in your heart and turn away from it and follow Christ? Christian spiritual inertia influences the purity of God's people. Inertia comes from Newton's first law of motion, that a body in, in motion tends to remain in motion, a body at rest tends to remain at rest. Well, spiritually, we are tending to remain in the direction we are already heading we find ourselves falling by birth, by gravity, and by inertia. We are all find ourselves on a slippery slope in, initiated in the garden. Our spiritual inertia follows the gravity of our sin nature. It is so much easier for us to revert to the old man than it is for us to follow the new. When all around us the prophets of Baal and Asherah cry in our ears, it is hard for us to separate ourselves from their sway. You may say, well, I've never seen Baal on television. I've never seen an Asherah grove on the news. Well, that's because they, the gods are the same. They just are in different guises. They cry, pursue power, pleasure, possessions, people, and please yourself. For Baal and Asherah, being fertility gods, were offering unto the people whatever it is that the people thought they needed to make themselves happy. These priests content themselves in pushing people to pursue any other object than that which the breath of life demands, that is God himself. We find ourselves rebuilding our Jerichos in the blood of our own souls.
And yet, I still have problems with the slippery slope argument because it follows the false assumption of uniformity, that things always remain the same. It fails to account for other forces that can deflect that initial act. Yes, the butterfly might start a hurricane, but can such a fragile force not be deflected by a larger force? For the same obtains in the spiritual realm as the gospel holds the power to reverse the strongest spiritual inertia. Comparatively, the gospel hurricane blows the stuffing out of the world's butterfly. We come before a God who is stronger than all the bales of the world. We serve a God who, by his almighty power, made us alive when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Yes, it is true. We wrestle with false spiritual leaders. We wrestle with difficult marriages. We wrestle with spiritual inertia. But the gospel breathes into our souls life. The gospel awakens us to our danger. And it gives us hope and peace. Christian, in the midst of so much that hazards your purity... Never forget the gospel of Jesus and the purity and the hope that he commands us to live in. Let's pray together. Our Lord, fill our eyes with the cross. Bless our marriages that we may sanctify and be sanctified. Give us spiritual leaders to bring us ever to the Savior. For we pray all this in his matchless name. Amen.